This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Thanks for being here tonight. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of James chapter 4. If you're taking score at home, that means we are three-fifths of the way through the book of James. That works out too. I'm bad at math, but I think 60% of the way through. Uh, So look at us just blazing through the book of James. We're in chapter 4 here tonight. And so uh, grab your Bibles, turn there if you would. Do me a favor, if you would not mind, would you mind praying for me this week? I have the opportunity uh, to be able to uh, preach at my Bible college's chapel on Wednesday. I'm really excited about that. They're, uh, woohoo, yes. Uh, they're having a, a church planting emphasis uh, this week, and so uh, I had the opportunity to be able to preach there. So just pray for me, if you would. Uh, it's a Saturday, I'm sorry, uh, Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., which would be 7 a.m. here, which for most of you, unfortunately, will probably still be in the bed. Shame on you. Uh, you, should, you should get up early and pray for your pastor. But uh, seriously, it's a, it's a really neat opportunity for me, first of all, because I get the opportunity to challenge uh, young people who want to serve Jesus with their life in the area of church planning. I'm really excited about that. Secondly, it's historic because I've never, ever been invited to preach there before, ever. And after they hear me preach, I'll probably never get the opportunity to go back again. And so it's going to be a really big deal. And so I'm really excited about that. And so uh, my family's in, uh, already in California this uh, past week. They've been over there. Uh, my uh, mother-in-law flew out and spent some time with all, all of our kids. And they went to Disneyland and California Adventure and did all the touristy stuff so that when I get there, we can do nothing. Uh, so uh, that's the idea at least. But uh, seriously, I, I head out tonight. Uh, I'll be back on Friday afternoon. And so um, uh, the only service I'll miss will be our Wednesday night midweek gathering. And so. Pray for me if you would. I'd greatly appreciate that. I'm, I'm super pumped up about it. The problem is, here's the problem. I have 40 minutes. And most of you that know me, don't say it. You're, you're dirty. I thought you guys were my friends and you guys were like, mm, I see where this is going. Uh, thank you. Um, 40 minutes, I'm just kind of like catching my groove and getting, thing, getting the wheels turning at that point, you know, to be able to like keep it to 40 minutes and wrap it up in 40, that's going to be tough. So uh, anyways, uh, I'm really excited about it though. So anyways, but here's the thing, I get to preach tonight. And so grab your Bibles, turn to the book of James, uh, chapter number four, if you would, uh, this evening. Um, we're continuing our series entitled Practical Christianity. If you have the Kuikala app on your mobile device, uh, you can actually uh, pull up the notes for tonight's message uh, as well. If you want to jot down some thoughts as uh, they come up tonight, that's good as too. Good too. Practical Christianity is the name of our series uh, on Sunday nights dealing with the book of James. The idea is this. Uh, just really quick recap. James was probably one of the first books of the New Testament that was written chronologically speaking. Uh, and so as he's writing, he's writing to a group of Christians who used to be Jews, but are now Christians. Uh, they used to go to church in Jerusalem, but now they've been scattered because of persecution. And they don't know the first thing about what it means to be a Christian. 
And so James just writes to them really practical advice on how Christians live. Uh, James doesn't have any deep theological doctrines uh, that he drops on them, doesn't have any big heavy platitudes uh, that he has as far as uh, the meaning of of Christ and the way that uh, Christ is our substitutionary atonement. Uh, He would save all that stuff for for Paul. Uh, But James just writes really practically, here's how Christians live. And that's why it makes it so helpful for you and I. Uh, The book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom that's very practical. And some people have actually nicknamed the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. Because it's just uh, really brief, really short, thoughtful, meaningful, helpful, practical wisdom for us uh, as Christians to live by. And we find ourselves now in uh, chapter number four. If you've missed seeing the messages so far, you can always get caught up on our podcast or through our website or through the Who We Call app. Uh, But you won't want to miss out on any of these messages because they're super helpful. Mind you, uh, just uh, recap chapter number three that we just wrapped up. It's talking about the disparity between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of of the world brings strife, it brings drama, it brings fighting and comparison and envy, uh, the Bible says. But the, the peace that, I'm sorry, the wisdom that God offers brings peace and rest and hope and and unity uh, that's found there. That's the kind of the context where we jump off uh, in uh, James chapter 4. We're going to go verses 1 through 3 tonight. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, and you have not, because you ask not. You ask, and you receive not, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your own lusts. Just three verses here, but so much to unpack. In the very beginning, he says, hey, where is this infighting and wars taking place amongst you? From the very beginning of the church as we know it, and in the, again, this would have been right after persecution came to Jerusalem, the church splits as the church scatters. At the very beginning of this, James says, hey, what's the problem going on amongst you? There's fighting, there's warring against you in the church. What's going on with this? And James identifies from the very beginning that interpersonal conflict is always a result of inner turmoil. When people aren't getting along with one another, we have to ask the question, why? When someone speaks to me in an unkind tone of voice, I have to stop before I want to put them in their place and have to stop and say, wow, why are you so angry? What causes you to respond that way? Um, Oftentimes in our marriage, we have to remind each other uh, in our marriage, hey, I'm on your team. You don't have to raise your voice at me. Hey, we're good. We're, we're, we're attacking the problem together. What's, what's going on? Talk to me. Because interpersonal conflict is always a result of things taking place on the inside. That's what James says in verse number one here. From whence come wars and fightings among you? They come not hence or from the outside. They come from your lust on the inside. And so anytime we have problems in a relationship, whether it's the problem with you and your boss, a problem with uh, you and your neighbor, problems between you and your spouse, problems between you and another friend or a family member, we always have to look inside for the problem. Now, there can there be external problems that take place for sure, uh, but that doesn't cause fighting and conflict. If you've got financial problems in your marriage, the finances aren't the issue. The issue are our hearts towards one another. 
you got a problem with your boss because he's being unfair or has too high of expectations for you or uh, has categorized you as a problem solver or a rabble rouser. The problem isn't with the external circumstances. The problem is always a heart issue. Uh, again, for me as a pastor, when I try to help people talk through their problems, I'm not a licensed counselor or a therapist or anything like that. I have no professional training when it comes to counseling. I'm just a good friend that can listen and point people back to the Bible. But oftentimes in talking with people, uh, it's, it's easy in the first few minutes to identify the fruit problems. Oh, he's angry all the time, or, you know, she never listens to me, or, you know, he doesn't respect me, or uh, fruit problems. Then we have to track down, which is really hard sometimes and can take a really long time to unpack, what is the root problem that's really going on here? Why is he so angry all of the time? Let's figure that out. Because the Bible says from the inside is where these problems come from. Why doesn't she respect you? Let's figure, out that, figure that out, and then we can get to a root issue that's going on. But anytime there's interpersonal conflict, it comes from something taking place on the inside. The Bible tells us, and this is really, really simple, but you've got to master this. Pride is the root of all contention. All of it. If you're having an argument with your spouse, I know for a fact the source of it. I don't even have to ask. Oh, we're not getting along because he said this or that. No, that's not the issue. The Bible says, again, Proverbs 13, 10, only by pride cometh contention. Only. You're upset with your boss because he said something unkind. What's the root of that? The root of that is pride. I got cut off in traffic the other day and I gripped my steering wheel so hard I left like knuckle prints in it. I was so mad. And then I thought to myself, why are you so mad? Have you ever cut anybody off in traffic before? Have you ever been in a hurry before? Do you always use your blinker, you know? Why am I so angry? Why am I so frustrated? You know why? Because that was disrespectful of them to do to me, Right? I'm in a hurry. I'm trying to get things done. I got, I got a lot. I got a busy day. I'm trying to get home. I'm trying to get things done. And people are walking all slow in the crosswalk. Has that ever happened to you? Like they walk slow in the crosswalk, and then they look at you and like make eye contact and walk even slower. And you're just like, "Come on! Like, are you kidding me? You know, like, like normal people when they walk in the crosswalk like oh oh i see you there let me hurry up and get out of the way right oh no you're gonna walk slower because you see me there oh i ought to get out and help you cross the road because it looks like you're having a little bit of problem tonight why do i feel that way what has overcome me to cause me to think these thoughts you know what it is pride I don't deserve to be inconvenienced by this. I'm more important than you are. You need to move out of the way as quickly as possible so that I can get on with the rest of my day because you're wasting my time. Wow, that's harsh. It is. But again, we have to ask ourselves, why do I get frustrated by that? It's somebody crossing the road. We boil this down and we step outside of ourselves to look at a situation objectively and it's like, wait a minute, you about lost your mind because somebody crossed the road today? Like, what's wrong with you? And again, the question is, I need to look inside myself and find out why does that make me so angry? And the answer is always pride. So what's the answer to that? Humility always squashes discord. Here's what the Bible says. Where there's no wood, the fire goes out. Hey, I'm not going to engage in that, and I'm just going to walk in humility. 
for me, uh, I made a, a decision a long time ago. A long time ago for me, it's like 90 days ago. A uh, long time ago. I'm not going to be in a hurry to get from point A to point B. I'm going to leave myself plenty of time that I'll even arrive early and can do something productive with my time when I arrive early because I became so flustered, rushing and trying to hit every light and, and cutting people off in traffic and getting mad when people needed to be let in that it just wasn't good for my spirit. And so I had to change my way of thinking and my perspective that, hey, I get there when I get there. I'm going to leave myself plenty of time so that I can get there without any drama, without any frustration, and just get on with life. I often say if I could go back to my wedding day and look my 21-year-old self in the eyeballs and give him one piece of advice, here's what it would be. Stop being so stinking selfish because it's not about you. Because for many years of our marriage I was frustrated because I wasn't getting what I wanted out of marriage because I felt like I was entitled to something uh, whether it was a hot meal when I walked in the door whether it was someone's attention uh, whether it was the situation to be the way that I want it was or even the way that the furniture was arranged in our house can you believe that me as a guy used to argue about arranging furniture now it's just like babe I don't care you want to put folding chairs in here I don't care you want us to sit on the floor and eat dinner I don't care at this point really but what, what squashed that discord in our home? Humility. It always does. But here's the problem. Humility's hard. There's something in us, in our spirit, that cries out for justice. I don't deserve to be treated that way. You won't disrespect me. Somebody needs to put you in your place. Somebody needs to fix what's broken. And pride wells up, and humility's very, very hard to do. Humility requires us to actually be like Christ, and that's incredibly difficult. But Philippians chapter 2, verse number 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Wow. Isn't that something? I want to treat others better than myself. That's big, that's hard. I've been to, to dinner with people before and been greatly embarrassed by them treating waiters and wait staff and stuff like that as disrespectful. Not looking people in the eye, talking over their shoulder at people, snapping their fingers at people, and it's just like, uh-uh, I'm, I'm so not with this guy right here. It's embarrassing, you know why? Because they feel entitled to something. Humility says, this is another person, this is another human being, this is how they pay their bills. I want to treat them with kindness. I want to treat them with respect. I want to be generous when I have the opportunity to be generous because the Bible says if it's in your hand to do good to somebody, you should do it. And so I want to treat people with kindness and respect, but that requires a level of humility. And again, when we can find a place of humility, everything else in our life becomes a lot more peaceable. I don't get offended quite as easily anymore. I don't get frustrated as easily anymore because I, I try to walk in humility. Very difficult, but it's a daily battle for me. Again, one of the things that I struggle with is I struggle against pride. And so I have to remind myself every single day of the world to walk in humility because humility brings peace in our interpersonal relationships as opposed to conflict. You see, strife is an indication of carnality in our lives, not spirituality. If there's always fighting, if there's always drama, if you're known as one of those people who always stirs up stuff and kicks up dust everywhere you go, you're not spiritual, you're actually carnal. 
Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. If you're one of those people, oh, everywhere I go, I like to kick tails and take names. (laughs) Please don't advertise that because you're not a good Christian. Don't tell people you're a Christ follower because when you stir up drama everywhere you go, that's an indication that you're not really following Jesus. You take a look at Jesus. Jesus didn't stir up trouble everywhere he went. There were a few hills that he was willing to die on. There's a, a few places he was willing to not uh, compromise. He was willing to take a stand. And those came to the glory of his father, not because he was personally disrespected. He allowed people to disrespect him all day long. The Bible says he was reviled and he reviled not again. You got somebody who was, had an a opportunity to speak their peace or give a, people a piece of their mind. Jesus is it, but he didn't. He walked in humility. That's a picture of spirituality. Hey, people can say things about me that are unkind. Some people can say things about me that are untrue. I don't have to answer every fool according to his folly, the Bible says. I can walk in humility and let the Lord handle that and let the Lord sort it out. And when I can learn to walk in humility, that means I can learn to walk in Christ-likeness. Galatians chapter 5 Verse number 19. Turn over there if you would. Keep your finger here in, in James. We're coming back in just a second. But turn over if you would to Galatians chapter 5. Y- you need to see this because it's so important. Galatians chapter 5, you'll hear me quote probably two or three times a month the fruit of the Spirit as found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. You should circle those. You should star those. You should underline them in your Bible. If you're using a mobile app, you should highlight this on whatever app you're using. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 are so critically important to your Christian well-being. Because if you ever want to know, am I walking in the Spirit? These two verses will tell you. Is your lifestyle categorized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. If not, you're not walking in the Spirit. If you can't control your mouth and you always have to have the last word and you always have to have the final say, that means you're not walking in temperance or self-control, which means you're not filled in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. If your words are not words that bring love and joy and peace to a situation, you're not walking in the Spirit. If you can't treat people with gentleness and goodness, you are not walking in the Spirit. That's a problem. Because, if you're in Galatians chapter 5, go to verse number 19, and it tells you what happens when we walk in the flesh. Verse 16, back up to verse 16. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You should circle that. You should star that. You should underline that. That's important. Now we go down to verse number 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, and again, fornication is any type of sexual activity outside of marriage. Uncleanness, lasciviousness, which is also uh, sexual lust. So you notice the very first four fruits of the flesh are sexual in nature. But then it goes on to idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresy, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such the like, 
And get this, you look at, if you look at any of those things in that list and say, these categorize my life, I want you to be very, very attentive to what comes next. Verse 21. Of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but that causes my ears to perk up to say, wait a minute, this is pretty heavy in God's eyes. This is a big deal. Now, some people's knee-jerk reaction to this passage is, are you saying if somebody commits adultery, they don't get to go to heaven? Are you saying that somebody who has envy doesn't get to go to heaven? That's not what the passage means. It means those who live a lifestyle categorized by these things in their lifestyle show no fruit whatsoever of the fact that they are a saved individual. And if you are not saved, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, this is going and looking at the fruit of your life and someone's fruit of their life which is categorized by here probably 15 or 16 different gross, egregious sins against God, that isn't the lifestyle of a Christian, is what Paul's saying here. Now, does that mean that somebody who's involved in sex outside of marriage doesn't go to heaven? That's not what it means. But what it does mean is Christians don't behave that way. Does that make sense? So, again, when we look at the fruit of the flesh, one of those things that it has, that it mentions there, is strife. That means interpersonal conflict or, in modern-day vernacular, drama. Somebody who's constantly feeding off conflict. Have you ever met people like that before? They don't want peace. They want conflict. And if they can't get it from you, they'll move on to the next person that they can get conflict from. They're addicted to drama. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. That's a fruit of the flesh. And you should pay very, very close attention that that does not categorize your life. So again, Christians are looking for peace. That's a mark of spirituality. Strife is an indication of carnality. Now, Christians should place a high price on peace and long-suffering. Christians should look for a way to provide healing. Christians should be conflict resolvers. Now, again, I'm not talking about going and getting in everybody's business and trying to help other people fix their problems and stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, hey, if somebody's got a problem with me, I want to resolve it. I want to fix it. Because here's the thing. I don't want to pillow my head at night knowing that I have a problem with someone, not because of pride or because I want people to think well of me, but because the Bible says that blessed are the peacemakers. I want to make peace. If I've offended someone, I want to make that right. If I've said something hurtful to someone, I want to resolve that. Christians should want to be the type of people that bring closure to a situation, that bring resolution to a situation. Why? Because that's precisely what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He came and he died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could make peace with God. Jesus came so that we wouldn't have to live under the crushing weight of our sin and under the crushing weight of our guilt and shame. And He came and He sent His Son and died upon the cross to pay for our sins. 
So that anyone that would put their faith and trust in Christ as Savior could be saved or born again to lift the weight of guilt, to lift the weight of shame, to lift the weight of our sin, to give us peace with God. That's why Jesus came. And you and I are like Christ when we look for restoration and resolution because that's a picture of the gospel. Open-ended strife and fighting and I don't like that person. Yeah, I don't like them either. That's not Christianity. That's carnality. That's why I put a stake in the ground here at Hui Call and say, hey, if you've got a problem with another brother or sister in our church, you're going to fix it within 24 hours or you're not welcome here. Well, you can't make me leave the church. <laughs> you need to read Matthew chapter 18. You can find out I don't, I, I can and I will. Because the peace with God's people is so critical to the job that we do. Hey, look, the devil hates your guts. The unsaved world hates your guts. I'm not going to allow another Christian to hate your guts. That's a fact. So if you've got a situation that needs resolving, I'm willing to help you do that. What you cannot do is have a problem with another Christian. And we've had people before who are like, well, that's fine. I'll love them. It doesn't mean I have to like them. Oh, no, 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 no. You'll like them too. You might not have to go over to their house every Sunday for lunch, but we're not going to have people that we turn our nose up at at church or that we purposely avoid uh, in handshaking time. We're not going to have people that, oh, you can go to the 8 o'clock service because I don't want to see your face. I'll go to the 10 o'clock service. Oh, no, 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 no. Not in Jesus' church. If that happens, it'll happen over my dead body, that's for sure. Because we're a people of peace. We love one another. We're a family. And in families, sometimes things get ugly, but we resolve them, we fix them, and then we move on stronger and better as a result of it. That's just, that's just how it works. But James, as he's writing to the church, uh, the, the Christians that are scattered here, he's saying to them, hey guys, you have fighting and conflict in the, amongst yourselves. That's not good. That's not healthy. And again, if we as a church want God's blessing upon our church and we crave that, we pray for God's hand of favor and blessing and the opportunity to impact our city for the sake of the gospel, we cannot do it if we are a fractured con congregation, a fractured family. That's just not going to happen. So again, we as Christians, we're going to seek peace. We're going to look for, for ways to bring resolution. We're going to be long-suffering the Bible tells us that God is disgusted by those who sow discord. Those who create strife, create problems. This is on a list of the things that God has no appetite for. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, verse number uh, 16. I want you to see this for yourself. If you've got your notes handy, you can uh, read it in your notes, but I really want you to look at it in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verse number 16. Proverbs chapter 6, verse number 16. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Pause. Stop for just a second. This is getting ready to list seven sins that God specifically, on purpose, hates. Okay? It's important to note that some would call these the seven deadly sins, right? That's not a biblical thing. 
that's a Catholic thing. That's a uh, extra biblical literature, Dante's Inferno, all that other stuff. Not in the Bible anywhere, okay? Because here's the thing. We as Christians know that every single solitary sin is deadly. All of them, 100%. There are thousands of deadly sins. You know why? Because James tells us, every man is enticed when he's drawn away of his own lust. And when sin is conceived, it brings forth death every single time. So all sin is deadly. So this is not a list of seven deadly sins. That's not a biblical thing. Uh, That's a Catholic thing. Uh, But I, I say that because you might be saying, hey, wait a minute. No. Verse 16, these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. It's also important to define the term abomination. We don't use that, that word in our vernacular too often these days. If you've had a really terrible meal before, you might have used the word abomination to describe it. But we typically don't use it. The word abomination means uh, deep-seated disgust and or hatred that makes one physically ill. Like, God hates this so badly it makes him sick to his stomach. That's pretty heavy. So what are these things that God hates? Number one, a proud look. So get this. God hates pride with a burning, deep-seated passion. Why? Because only by pride comes contention. Pride is the thing that splits churches. Pride is the thing that splits homes. Pride is the thing that causes drama and fighting and wars. Hey, look, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now? I don't have a clue as to what's going on. I don't know what they're fighting over. I don't know why they're going to invade somebody. But I'll tell you, the root of it is guaranteed to be pride. Guaranteed. So this tops the list of the things that God hates. Next, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift, running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and, rounding out the top seven, he that soweth discord among brethren. Whoo, wow. It's pretty big. It's a serious list there, isn't it? God hates these things with such a deep-seated burning passion that he put them on a special list. It's pretty intense, huh? That's why for me as as a pastor, it grieves me to hear pastors sometimes who want to rail against homosexuality, which again is a biblical sin. Please don't misunderstand my statement here. It is 100% wrong. It cannot be justified by the Bible in any terms whatsoever. And again, we have to stand on that as unpopular as it might be. We're not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. We're trying to say what the Bible says, okay? People say, oh, the Bible says for two men to be together is an abomination before the Lord. Amen. The Bible also says pride is an abomination to God too. The Bible also says those that create strife and drama and fighting, that's an abomination before God as well. And so we need to be careful with that. That, hey, look, it's easy for us to point out someone else's sin. It's a little bit more difficult to take a look at ourselves. Oh, it's easy for me to point a finger at somebody who flies a rainbow flag. It's a little bit more difficult for me to look into the depths of my own heart and get bent out of shape when somebody wants to cross the road. You see what I'm saying? That's why Jesus says, hey, watch out for the speck in your brother's eye while you got a log in your own. Now, I should also help my brother out with his speck, but I need to take care of my log first. So again, when it comes to 
walking in humility and having peace with our fellow brother, it's important to understand that, that God doesn't care too much at all for people that sow strife. So we got to be peacemakers. But there's some people who sow strife and you know, there's nothing you can do about it. You know what you need to do? Just do your best with those people. Again, there's people who are addicted to strife, addicted to drama, that if there's not a problem, they'll make up a problem. They'll invent something to start a fight or to bait you into a debate of some sort. They're not looking for resolution. They're not looking for peace. They thrive off of attention or drama or things like that. With people like that, there's nothing you can do except just do your best. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse number 18, If it be possible, as much lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. I love the Bible because it's so clear. He didn't just give you the commandment, live peaceably with all men. Well, I'm trying, but this person can't, but I'm commanded to, so I've got to find another way. No, no, no. Here's what he says. As much lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. I I can honestly say, before God and you tonight, there's not a single person in the world that I tonight have ill will, angry feelings towards, upset, which thing's bad for. I don't know who my worst enemy is at this point, honestly. I can tell you that with 100% certainty. You say, wow, must be nice. I guess I can name you a dozen people that hate my guts and, and want me to die, but they're not enemies of mine. I've tried to make things right. I've tried to apologize. I've walked in humility before them, but they just don't want peace. That's fine. It's not on me. I sleep very well at night knowing that I don't have any unresolved issues out there with anybody that I haven't tried to make right. But there's some people who just don't want things to be made right. And there's nothing you or I can do about that other than to just do our best. Hey, I can tell you're upset with me. I want to apologize for anything that I've done wrong. Did you know, this might sound bad, but it's actually really, really good. There have been times that I have apologized to people where I did absolutely nothing wrong because I just wanted to live peaceably. And again, I try to use my words carefully when I do that. Hey, I'm sorry what I said upset you. Now, again, if I say something from the Bible, let's make this clear. If I say something from the Bible, I'm not going to apologize for it. It just is what it is. I'm sorry that that hurt your feelings. I'm sorry that that stirred up some feelings inside you that you don't know how to process. I'm sorry if I said that in a way that seemed hurtful or unkind or uncaring because that certainly was not my intention. I'm really sorry that you feel that way. And that's okay. I'm not going to apologize for what the Bible says. The Bible is what it is. God said it, not me. If you have a problem with what the Bible says, you have a problem with God, not me. But again, I can't apologize to someone even when I'm 100% in the right in an effort to seek peace because I don't want there to be any strife. I don't want there to be any unresolved drama. I want to seek peace with people because again, strife is a mark of carnality and I don't want that in my life. Psalm 34, verse number 14, depart from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Turn back to the book of James chapter four if you would. So again, we're supposed to be peacemakers, those who love peace, those who love long-suffering, those who walk in the Spirit. So he says, hey, 
You know the root of your problem is your lust that war inside your members. Then he goes on to verse number two. And he says, you lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war and you have not because you ask not. One of the things he says, verse number three, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. You see, to chase after the world, we have to abandon godly wisdom and be led by our selfish desires. He says, you lust. You desire so greatly to have what you want, but you still don't get it. He goes on and says, you kill and you have not. Now, I don't believe he's accusing anyone in the early church of murder in this case. I think he's, ex- he's explaining uh, in an in a allegorical way that you are going to the ends of the earth to fulfill your own selfish, carnal desires. And that's really unhealthy. Because if you're going to chase after the things that this world has to offer, you have to abandon the wisdom of God. You can't have both. Again, I cannot love this world and love God at the same time. The Bible says that creates hostility between me and God. It makes me an enemy of God if I'm a lover of the things of this world. And so for you to lust after the things of this world, to crave the things of this world means that you have abandoned godly wisdom and are given over to your own selfish desires. And so really, James is asking you and I as we read through this passage to do a deep dive of our heart. Is there any unresolved anger with another person? Is there any drama that you have that needs to get resolved or smoothed over? Is there something in your life that you are craving and desiring that really is just a earthly, fleshly, carnal pleasure? You know, sometimes when you and I think about idolatry, we think of bad things, sinful things. We think of money or cars or status or, you know, intimate sexual relationships. These are the idolatry of the world. But you know what? Sometimes we can take good things and turn them into God things and it becomes idolatry. I've known married couples that want children so badly that they would stop at nothing to have children because children becomes idolatry for them. They don't care about their walk with God. They don't care about the things of God. They're willing to go to the ends of the earth to be able to have a child that they can call theirs. And having a child, not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But God's in control of it. You're not. But when we chase after the things, there's sometimes even good things. It becomes idolatry. I've known people that want to be married so badly as single adults that they're willing to do whatever it takes to fulfill that need that they have. Even if it means sinning, even if it means dating someone who's not a Christian, even if it means blowing past all biblical wisdom to do it because marriage has become idolatry for them. I've known people who are pursuing education. Education is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Get smarter if you can. But they pursue education to the detriment of their relationship with God, therefore education then becomes idolatry. And so again, when we look at the lusts of our flesh, sometimes we immediately go to awful, terrible, sinful things. Actually, it could be really healthy things that end up replacing God. There's a family who came to our church early on in the years at Huicala, and they said, well, pastor, uh, you won't see us for the next three months. It's baseball season, and our kids play in a 
traveling league and you won't see us for the next three months. And I said, well, I hope I see you in three months. And he said, ha, 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 we'll be back. Guess what? They didn't come back. Is it wrong to play baseball? Nope. Is it wrong to put baseball before Jesus? 100% of the time. So baseball is not a bad thing. It's a boring sport, but, it, it, but you saw what I did there, didn't you? It's not a bad thing, but the problem is, is when you place it in place of God or over God on your list of priorities, it becomes idolatry. And so again, it's, care, it's careful that we, we need to be careful that we check our heart and make sure that we're not chasing after the things that this world has because we're abandoning godly wisdom. Any attempt to be satisfied by the things of this world will prove futile, guaranteed, fact. If you think, oh, if I could just get married, I'll be happy, <laughs> it won't fix all of your problems. Oh, if I could just have a child, I'd be happy. It won't fix all of your problems. Oh, if I could just get this new job, it'd fix all my problems. It won't fix your problems. If we could just get moved to this place in the country, everything, all of our problems would go away. They're not. If you're seeking for satisfaction outside of Jesus himself, you will be disappointed 100% of the time. Because only Jesus can satisfy the longings of your soul. He created himself that way. He created you with a longing and desire to know him and experience him like never before. That's what your heart craves, not a new job or a new place to live or a new relationship or any of those other things. God's created you to crave him. Haggai 1.6, this is in your notes, but you should write it down if you're taking your own notes, write it down to the side. Here's what the prophet says. He says, you've sown much, but you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there's nobody warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag with holes. Man, if that doesn't describe our society today, I don't know what does. You want all this stuff, and then you get it, and you realize, actually, I just want more. You climb a ladder, and you realize, I want to go to the next level. I experienced success, but now I want more success. I've heard it said before that the things that you take for granted are the things that other people are praying for, and that's so true. Some people would give anything in the world to have what you have that you take for granted. But our society constantly wants more, 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 more. And Haggai says, hey, you're getting what you want, but it's not enough, is it? You want more. You want more. Here's the thing. When you crave Jesus, there's always more to be had. Always. It'll never run out. You'll always be satisfied. Even if you desire to, to know Jesus more, he'll make himself known. If you desire to walk with Jesus more, he'll, he'll give you the strength and the grace to walk even more with him. And you and I have made a serious error when pleasure becomes the overriding desire of our lives because we'll stop at nothing to get it. The word that's used here when we talk about craving pleasure is hedonism. It means pleasure becomes our master. Whatever can maximize my pleasure, that's where I'm going. And that categorizes the world that we live in today. Hey, I'm in a relationship, but it doesn't bring me pleasure anymore. I'm going to find another one. Hey, I've got a job. This job is kind of a drag. I think I'll find a better one. Hey, I got a good friend group, but they're not very much fun anymore because everybody's getting old, and so I think I'll find a different friend group. 
hey, I used to enjoy doing this. That's not fun anymore. I'll find something else that is fun. But then we never, as Christians, realize that a hedonistic mindset is a carnal mindset. Our job is not to chase pleasure. Our job is to chase the glory of God. Makes a difference in how we live our lives. You see, at the end of the day, again, particularly James chapter 4, verse number 3, you ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. God will give us exactly what we need and many times what we want, but he is not an idol giver to satisfy our idolatry. Hey, look, God has promised to take care of every single need that you have, every single one. Because God is gracious and he's loving and he's a good father, he many times will give you the things that you want. Even above the things that you need. Hey, look, I need food and water to live. That's all I need. I could eat peanut butter sandwiches for the rest of my life and a glass of water for every meal and I would be okay. I would live. But man, did you know this week while my wife has been out of town, God has allowed me to order pizza three times? <laughs> and it's been glorious every time, every time. I mean, I got frozen pizzas in the freezer. I didn't have to preheat the oven this week. This has been good. And, and I ordered Papa John's breadsticks and I put them in the fridge. Man, I've been eating on those all week long. I didn't need to order pizza three times, but I wanted to. You see what I'm saying? God is not t- the type of God that wants to make you miserable for following. He's a good father. He wants you to bring, bring you joy. But please don't mistake the fact that God doesn't give you your idols Oh, I want to be rich. I want to be successful. God's not going to give you those things. The the Bible speaks much in the book of Proverbs about those who have a desire to be rich. And it has a word for them, fools. God's not going to give you status. Now, the devil might. The devil might give you riches because he's waiting for you to fall. But many times, this is prevalent amongst a certain level, I'll go so far as to say false Christianity and the prosperity gospel that says that God exists to prosper you financially and that God exists to give you the stuff that you want. And if you want that new Mercedes, you should go sit down at the dealership behind the wheel and grip the steering wheel and say, God gave me this. And continue to repeat it. God gave me this. God gave me this. God gave me this. And God's going to give it to you because that's what God does. What? I even heard one blasphemous preacher say, well, you're a child of the king, and the child of the king don't wear tattered clothes, and they don't drive broke-down cars. What? No, you're right, because the Son of God had no place to lay his head. Yeah, you're right. Again, God doesn't exist to give you stuff to make you happy. God exists to give you himself to make you happy. One popular author has a quote that I like the idea of it. God is most satisfied in us when we are most, uh, God is most pleased in us when we are most satisfied in him. I love that idea that when my satisfaction is in Christ, God's pleased by that. And so again, we have to look at our relationship with God. We ask, 
and we don't receive what we get because we ask with the wrong intentions. Motives matter to God. You might not, not think that. You might just think that the end justifies the mean, but God is greatly concerned in our heart status and our motives. They matter to God. And again, that's why I think it's really important that you and I ask ourselves often, why did I say that? Why am I angry? Why am I frustrated? Because the reason behind that actually matters to God, believe it or not. So when we pray, we have to check our motives and make sure that we're right before God. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Here's what Proverbs 15, 8 says. This is heavy. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. If you're living in carnal, wicked sin, anything you do religious-wise just makes God sick. That the wicked, those who have abandoned godly wisdom and chase after the things of this world, even when they do good stuff like make sacrifice, God's like, "Uh uh-uh. God even told the children of Israel, hey, stop making sacrifices because your sacrifices stink. Literally. Like, the smell of your sacrifices in my nostrils make me nauseous. Knock it off. That's how seriously God takes this. So again, when I pray for things, i got to make sure that my motives are right. When I ask God to bring people to Huikala and the people that are searching for Jesus would find Jesus here at Huikala, am I really praying for the glory of God? I hope so, and I want to check my heart. I want to make sure that I'm not trying to get people to church so I can say we had 250 people in church on Sunday or that I pastor a big church or you know, we had five people get saved last month. I don't want to, I don't want to brag. I don't want to boast. So I got to check my heart. I really want the glory of God. I do. And so again, we got to check our motives. Why am I praying for this? And the question is, do I want this thing more than I want God's presence in my life? Is Jesus really enough? Or do I also have to have this other thing that I really want really badly too? Hey, single adults, if you never got married for the rest of your life, would Jesus be enough? You know the right answer is like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Is that really the answer for you, though? For those that are praying for children, if you never had children, would Jesus be enough for you? For those of you that are desiring, you know, to retire somewhere and buy a big house on a piece of land somewhere, if you never got that, would Jesus be enough? We made the decision when we moved to Honolulu. Mind you, this was in 2013 when we moved back here. Man, housing prices I thought were ridiculous then. We made a decision. Hey, we'll probably never own a house here, and that's okay. We own a house in California. You know what? It was just a house. And we made a decision when we move here, we'll probably never own a house in Honolulu. And that's fine. You know why? Because my goal in life is not to own a house. My goal in life is that God would be glorified through my life. It's priorities. And here's the thing, Jesus is enough. If I lost my wife and kids tomorrow, I can still say Jesus is enough. If I lost every dollar to my name, I can say tomorrow, Jesus is still enough. If I had no earthly possessions, nowhere to lay my head, I can say, hey, Jesus is enough. But that requires me to check my heart before I pray. Final thought here tonight. As Christians, we have to crave the glory of God the same way that the world craves pleasure 
that word that's found in James chapter four, verses one through three, where it uses the word lust is actually the word hedonism. The Greek word that we get our word hedonism from. Constantly in seek of pleasure. Constantly desiring more. That dopamine hit that comes from getting what you want. Oh man, if you and I could crave the glory of God in our life the way that the world craves pleasure, whoo, man, can you imagine what would happen for the kingdom? It'd be next level. But you know the problem? And I'm I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I don't want to make you feel bad or anything like that. But the problem is, is that many Christians crave the world's pleasure more than they crave the glory of God. Yeah, I want the glory of God for sure, but I also want to be happy. I want to get stuff. I want to have what everybody else has. And unfortunately, there's a branch of fake Christianity built just for those people. Yeah, I can have all my stuff because Jesus makes me happy because he gives me a new Mercedes or gives me that new house or allows me to open up that coffee shop I've always wanted to. Oh, Jesus is just gives me all the stuff that I want so I can have my cake and eat it too. I'm here to tell you tonight, and I don't want this to sound like a downer because it's actually a benefit. You cannot have the pleasures of the world and have Jesus at the same time. You just can't. I'm sorry if that seems harsh, but here's what Jesus says. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There was a really rich dude that came to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, what do I have to have to have eternal life? Oh, follow all the commandments. Yeah, I've already done that. Oh, okay, what next? Sell everything you have and follow me. You know what the Bible says? He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Man. And we can look at that and go, oh, what a loser. He, he turned on following Jesus for stuff. Be careful because I've been that loser before <laughs> who's turned on following Jesus because I just wanted stuff. I've been the loser before who has craved God's stuff more than I actually desired God himself. I've been there before. But I had to come to a point where God is so much greater than those things. The presence of God in my life is so much greater than stuff. Friend, did you know that all the money in the world cannot buy the things that you and I, our souls crave? Money can't buy love. Money can't buy joy. Money can't bring peace. Money can't buy long-suffering. Money can't buy gentleness. can't buy goodness. It can't buy faithfulness, it can't buy meekness, and it can't buy temperance. Those are things that you are only going to get from God, but that's what you crave in the depths of your soul. Married couples don't desire a big, huge apartment that has a swimming pool and a hot tub and a gym. Are those things nice? Sure. But you wouldn't take those if you didn't have love and joy in your marriage. So what you really crave is love and joy. You know what you want out of your job? You don't want to just punch a clock and get a paycheck at the end of the week. You want to know that you matter, that somebody cares, that you're validated. But here's the thing, only God can bring that validation. We can't chase after the things of this world and expect the blessings of God. Most important thing in the world, if you're here tonight and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you don't know for sure if you died today, heaven's your home, please don't leave here tonight without knowing for sure that heaven is your home and your sins are forgiven. It makes all the difference in the world. Christian, Don't be tricked by the shiny stuff that this world has to offer. 
Don't take good things and make them God things and edge God out because you just want what you want. Make sure that when you pray that you would pray with the right motives. I'm praying for the glory of God, that God's will would be done in my life, not that I would get more stuff or be more happy because true joy comes from being who Christ has called me to be. So let's live like that this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.